from WGCU News. This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Collier County turned 100 this year. It was split off from Lee County by the state legislature in 1923, mostly because its namesake, Baron Gift Collier, agreed to fund the construction of the Tamiami Trail, which would be the first roadway to connect South Florida's east and west coasts and would open up the region to more tourism. To mark the centennial and hear some stories about pivotal moments and people who make Collier County what it is today. We took a trip down to the Collier County Library last week and brought together a panel of guests and had a fun chat on stage in the Library Sugden Theater. Let's hear that now. Thank you everybody for being here. As we started to think this up in our heads, it started off as let's try to tell the story and then we quickly realized that to try to tell a hundred year story in an hour or so is impossible. So we're gonna just try to get some storytelling done today, some key moments, uh, some interesting characters. We're gonna learn about the coalition of Immokalee workers and some uh, stuff about Immokalee. And so we'll just try to make this as conversational and engaging as possible. And like Pam said, there will be an opportunity for um, some questions at the end. But my guests here today, uh, this is Franklin Adams. Franklin is an author and environmentalist. He spent his life working to protect the Everglades. He's a member of the National Isaac Walton League of America Hall of Fame, the Florida Wildlife Federation Hall of Fame, and a recipient of the National Wildlife Federation Special Conservation Award for a lifetime of dedication to the preservation and protection of the Big Cypress and the Everglades. Franklin, it's nice to see you. And I'll give you guys a chance to introduce yourselves a little bit, but I'm going to read the, uh, the titles. Uh, Lila Zuck is a local author and historian. She's passionate about the history of Naples and has worked in the area for decades. And she's president and founder of the Collier County Historical Research Center. Thomas Lockyer is manager of the Museum of the Everglades. Lucas Benitez, on the end, is co-founder of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, and he said he's been in Immokalee or Collier County about 30 years, right? Yes. And then Laura Vasquez is also a longtime Collier County resident. She's director of Complaint Re Resolution with the Fair Food Standards Council. That's part of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. So uh, welcome them all. And now... And now, if you could, just Franklin, and be sure to talk into the microphone. Sorry to make you guys hold your own microphones. You don't have to turn it on or anything. Uh, but just tell them a little bit about yourself from your own perspective, and then we'll get to some questions and some stories. Well, I don't need the two hours I usually uh, take. Um, I was born in Dade County in Miami. Not Miami, Miami. That's the way we all said it back then. And grew up on the south side of the Miami River, a block from the Municipal Indian Village. Grew up with a lot of the Seminoles and Miccosukees and played with them and fought with them. And uh, I, uh, I never could make up my mind what I was going to do for a living. My father was a land surveyor. And uh, so I followed in his footsteps for a number of years. And, and he preferred boundary surveys and surveying out of town. We did a lot of surveys in Collier County and Monroe County as well as Dade County. And as a surveyor, I began to see some of these areas we surveyed that were really special areas destroyed and bulldozed. And so I, uh, in high school, I read Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's book, The Everglades River of Grass, and I was captivated by it. I checked it out again a couple weeks later and read it. And then I had the good fortune to attend uh, at Miami Dade Junior College uh, a course she taught. She was a visiting lecturer on, on the uh, uh, natural history of South Florida. It was a remarkable experience. I wish she was only 75 then. We, we had been able to record her talking. Uh, later on, uh, the way, we came to Collier County to fish and hunt and just explore away from Dade County. That was our country club. And uh, eventually I went to work for the National Audubon Society as a warden naturalist for Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary. Incredible job. I got a place to live, free toilet paper, and $300 a month, you know, when I worked there. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's been, a, a, you know, I've really enjoyed Collier County, and, and all of us moved over here years ago because they just got too crowded. It was a great place to grow up. And uh, eventually I uh, 
I bought the last the old Chukaloski cruiser boats from Chukaloski that was built at Smallwood Store and restored it. And so I fished and guided in Everglades National Park for about 12 years. And so it was back during the square grouper days. And I won't get into those stories, but it was an interesting encounter. But I have been real involved in environmental issues for many, many years. And it's just a pleasure to be here with you all this afternoon. And, and thank you for attending and having an interest in, in the past. Thank you. Lila, you can just talk right Oh, hello. Oh, this working. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, my name is Lila Zook, and I was also born in Miami and relocated to Naples not too long ago, only 30, a little over 30 years ago, and it seems like yesterday. But um, my first neighbor when I relocated here was Vi Stewart. Vi Stewart was a pioneer. Her father-in-law was Captain Stewart, who relocated to, who came to Naples in 1901 and became postmaster in 1908. Vi took me under her wing and introduced me to her circle of old-timer friends. That was so precious for me. They sparked an interest, although I was educated in the sciences, when I met them and moved to Naples, my interest switched to history. And I began listening and making notes every time I spoke with them and met with them until one day my file of handwritten notes got out of control and I thought, I need to get more specific. So I began doing proper research. And that's where my scientific background came in handy because I began researching and writing chronologically. And all the handwritten notes that I got from these lovely, lovely ladies helped establish in, within me the feeling of what it was like living in Naples in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, which nothing that you read can, can give you other than talking to people who lived then. And the smiles on their faces, the wrinkles in, in the corners of their eyes were not from age, it was from happiness. They were just overjoyed with having been able to live in Naples and Collier County back then, which apparently was even more beautiful than it is today because it was wild and untamed and, and not manicured. It took me 25 years to research the history of Naples. The first book I wrote was 1,000 pages. That's Every city deserves to have its history told, and Naples is absolutely one of them. Anyway, so I began researching and then finally sat down and was able to write for five solid years. That's how long it took to write the book on the history of Naples, just solid writing. Um, and then one book led to another and another and another, and now I'm just getting ready to work on the history of Immokalee which is going to take, I think I might have to pass that on to someone else to continue because it's going to take just as long because Immokalee deserves to have its history told and it hasn't been done yet. Um, so I'll just leave the rest of the questions, pass it on to Thomas. I'm Thomas Lockyer. Uh, 19 years ago, I was uh, starting my midlife crisis in Madison, Wisconsin. And I read a book called Quit Your Job and Move to Key West, and I did. Um, the, the author has since told me I'm his best testimonial. Um, I moved there, got a great job, which was destroyed by Hurricane Wilma a few months later. Uh, I moved down there, honestly, because I was going to become a treasure diver. Um, it didn't work out that way. The first job I found after dust settled from Hurricane Wilma was taking tickets at a pirate museum. And that was my entrance into my second career. So I've been a museum professional for 19 years now. And I've done everything from taking tickets to executive director. I met my wife, had a kid, all that good stuff down there, and eventually got priced out of living in the Keys. And we used to come to Everglades City on Valentine's Day. Because when you live in the funky Keys, what's the funky little town that you go celebrate a, a romantic weekend in? Um, we came to Everglades City. We'd stay at the Rod and Gun Club. And um, we fantasized about moving there with, the, you know, when our kid was born and everything like that. It wasn't to be, uh, w when we got priced out, we moved to the mainland. And then one day my wife came up and said, look what job is open. And it was the museum manager in Everglades City. And I said, do you really want to move again? And she said, if you can get that job, yes. So, um, so here we are. Uh, I've been there about seven years. And, you know, I've been passionate about history a lot of my life. I had an incredible teacher when I was a sophomore in high school that knew that teenage boys 
couldn't care less about whether or not George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. We wanted to hear about all these false teeth that he had. And, and you know, and how he was 6'2 at a time when there, you know, the average man was 5'6". And, you know, leading the charge and everything like that. And he told history by personality, by biography. And he was a storyteller. And, you know, and it stuck with me. And, you know, I never imagined myself being um, a teacher or I didn't even know that, that you know, museum professional was a, was a vocation. But years later, you know, I found my niche. And, and you know, I've said before that, that you know, I've been higher than, than I am in the, the museum industry. I've been a lot lower. I'm right in the middle where I really like to be, where I can be, have my hands and fingers in the creative development and not spend too much time crunching numbers and doing budgets and shaking hands, trying to get donations and those sorts of things. It's a perfect place. You know, Everglades City, birthplace of Collier County, by the way, you know, is a small community, but it's, its story is so crucial to the development and, and heritage of, of Collier County. And I've really had the honor and the privilege of getting to know the people and learning this story and letting people let me listen and, and learn from them. So, um, you know, I, I certainly haven't lived Collier County history as long as most of the people on the stage, but I, I certainly hope that my passion for that, that, that story um, at least rises to the same level. Uh, Laura, would you like to tell us about yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Laura Vasquez. Um, I'm, I've been living in Collier County. I first came in 1996 as a very young attorney, an idealistic young attorney who came to Immokalee to work with the migrant farm workers. And um, it was at that time, the Immokalee was a little bit of a different place than it is now. Um, I got to be involved with the very first instances of uh, representation of migrant farm workers with respect to slavery cases and different abuses that you used to see a lot in the fields all around Immokalee. And I had the very great pleasure to witness and be part of the birth of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And uh, Lucas is here. He, he's the co-founder of the, the coalition. And um, through the work of the coalition, we've seen really a, a, a big change in how the workers are treated and the agriculture in general um, in Immokalee and throughout the state of Florida and now um, internationally as well. So it's a pleasure to be here, and it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be working. I, I am working now with the coalition um, as a uh, director of complaint resolution for the Fair Food Standard Council, which is the enforcement arm of the Fair Food Program. And uh, thank you for having me here. And Lucas, last but not least. Buenas tardes. Nice, everybody's speaking Spanish. <laughs> Good. This is Southwest Florida, man. So, and Imakali, our community is formed by three com uh, main communities, Haitians, Mexicans, and Guatemalan. And a couple of white people live in Imakali. <laughs> so, I'm uh, from Mexico, and I arrived in Imakali almost uh, 31 years ago, when I was 17 years old. And a couple of years ago, I remember to asking uh, one of the, my partners in Makali, uh, from Guatemala, say, why are you coming to Makali? And he said, because when I was in Guatemala, and I listened three places for work, if I came to the United States, New York, LA, and Makali. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people came to Makali. And Makali is a backyard from Naples, right? But, same to uh, Everglades City. We're the same county, but in different worlds completely, right? So I don't know why, because our county, our town, is a farm workers town, and farm labor and farmers is a really important. And a lot of people know from Collier County, this region in Southwest Florida, produce 
90% of tomatoes during the winter and other vegetables. From the Mississippi, at this side of the Mississippi River, we provide vegetables during the winter. So we are a really important town and county. So I remember the Collier uh, farm many years, the Collier family. They own one of the biggest farms, a tomato producer here in, in, in Collier County. Right now it's a different growers, but different companies like Gargiulio, like uh, uh, Lakeman, uh, Pacific, uh, Dimare. So they produce millions of pounds of tomatoes every year from November to May. So in this produce, you're going to Publix and you're going to uh, Wendy's and Taco Bell, you see the tomato, elastic tomato, so sweet tomato. But these tomatoes is picked by human beings. It's not machines. We pick these tomatoes. So for many years, uh, I'm really, really tired to see uh, the front page and newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, Farm works in Immaculate, farm workers in Florida, this is labor cases and low wages. And so this is the face for many years of the agriculture. And we work and we are part of this industry. And we're tired to see this face for this agricultural industry. It's why in the Coalition of Immaculate Workers, when we started, we decided to change this face for the agriculture industry to make it a different face, a beautiful face, because make it everybody proud in this industry. Farm workers, farmers, buyers, and consumers. Yeah. So later we're talking about more about the, our fair food program. And right now we we started this uh, uh, vaccine to eliminate sexual harassment for women. It's a daily break for thousands of women working in the fields. We eliminate this abuse, child labor, slavery, and others thanks to the Fair Food Agreements, and working very close with the farmers and buyers like McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart, and others. Thank you. <clears throat> We're going to get to some history now. Thomas, I'm going to point this one at you. So if I've got the history correctly, settlement started happening here. We had an indigenous population that was here for, for thousands of years. Settlers started coming maybe in the mid-1800s, um, the Civil War had something to do, or post-Civil War kind of started some population. So give us the short version of those early days up until 1911, which is when Baron Collier came and some bigger things started changing. Okay, I'll see if I can do the short version here. Um, <laughs> there, other than the indigenous people, there wasn't a lot of, of settlement population in southwest Florida. But what really brought some of these pioneer farmers in was literally the Civil War. Now, most people know that, that Florida was part of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Most people don't know that Key West never was, always held by the Union. And my little joke is that, so if you were a good Southern gentleman and Key West wanted to join the Confederacy, you had to go north to join the South. Um, you know, and if you know your, your, your Key West, uh, Fort Taylor was a huge fort down there, big garrison that had to be fed. The island right before Key West, Stock Island, where they kept their cows and pigs. Having spent a decade living uh, on a bunch of different islands throughout the Keys, you cannot grow fruits and vegetables very well down there, certainly not um, you know, farm quality um, or quantities. So in order to feed these guys, they needed farms on the mainland. They did that along Cape Sable, um, you know, the very tip of, of Everglades National Park, protected by gunboats from Fort Taylor and Key West. Those farmers uh, that, that, you know, usually it was a husband and wife and their kids, you know, probably about half dozen, uh, 10 of them spread across Cape Sable, always looking for better ground, more fertile ground throughout the Civil War. One of those fellas, John J. Weeks, made his way all the way up to the mouth of what was then known as Potato Creek later known as the Allen River, when it was bought by an, another gentleman um, named Baron Collier, renamed the Barron River. Very fertile ground along the banks of the Barron River. And um, how did it become the Allen River in between there? Because the guy that supervised all that farming, the Marshall farmer, William Smith Allen, after the war, went through and laid claim to all the land that was really, really fertile. Uh, laid claim to the, the, uh, the, the town site of Everglades, Storter family came from Alabama, worked as field hands for him when Mr. Allen decided he didn't want that property anymore. 
sold it off, and they were growing everything from tomatoes, cucumbers, eggplants, lots of sugar cane. Um, but the thing that happened, the transformation with the, that Everglades City area was the other thing that was going on after the Civil War was wealthy Northerners coming down wanting to spend some money, find some things to do. The Storter family that, that took over that property from Mr. Allen figured out that they could make a lot more money as hunting and fishing guides than they could running a general store on the river. When Collier comes in in the early 1920s and sees these guys making money hand over fist as fishing guides and wants to know, and the, Mr. Collier, having made his millions in advertising, wants to know how they advertise to get all these people down here. What do they call their place? They don't call it anything. And how do they advertise? They don't. So he imagines that if he gave it a fancy name like Rod and Gun Club and expanded it, started advertising it, people would come from around the world to catch tarpon and other sport fish, and they did, and they're still doing it today. So we're here today because it's been 100 years since Collier County became a county. It's almost exactly 100 years. It was about two months ago, I think, when uh, the state legislature first partitioned Lee County off. So this used to be a part of Lee County, correct? Absolutely. And then uh, just about exactly uh, one year, uh, 100 years ago, was when the Collier County commissioners first held their meeting at the Broad and Gun Club. Um, can you tell us about the role that Tamiami Trail played in the naming of Collier County and sort of the, what Baron Collier did to get that road built, which laid the groundwork for Collier County? Well, I think, you know, when I started at the museum, I was really still learning about why this little town was there. And if you visited Everglades City, I mean, there are neoclassical structures, bank building, um, what is now City Hall. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just a little town. It was a city, you know, with boulevards and, and you know, central circles and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. What, it was a company town. What was the business of the company? And people say, well, building the road. And that's partially true, but it's not completely true. The business was tourism. And so Collier's creating this tourism destination in the early 1920s, right at the same time that the automobile is suddenly affordable for the average American. And certainly the wealthy Americans all have cars, they have fancy cars that they want to drive to these destinations. In order to get to Everglades, the first ad that we find for it, you have to take a train to Fort Myers, you take a bus from Fort Myers to, to the Naples Pier, get on a boat that, that takes you from Naples Pier to Marco Island, and from Marco Island, another boat, so a train, a bus, and two boats just to get to Collier's Luxury Resort. He needs a road, and that was the impetus for it. So, um, you know, the naming of the, of the Tamiami Trail, it's a, it's a portmanteau of, of Tampa to Miami. And, you know, it was something that existed as an idea long before Collier even came to uh, Florida and started purchasing land. But suddenly he was in need of seeing that road completed. And he knocked on every door that he could all the way up to Calvin Coolidge. Um, and really, I think everybody kind of looked at him and said, Mr. Collier, you're the only one that owns property there. We can't really justify spending taxpayer money on a public road this way. And he said, you know, I'll... I'll put the money up then, and he did. Um, you know, he he was definitely a, a man of action, and and you know, he, when you think about the fact that this road across the Everglades, and, and this is ignoring the the ecological ramifications of it, uh, that, that something that that's done in five years, from from 1923 to 1928, you know, it's a miracle of modern engineering. Uh, and but you know Collier wasn't about to do this, make this this expenditure, without this being you know benefiting him in some way. And the, the trade-off was to take you know draw a circle on a map, which was the, primarily circling land that he already owned. He owned over a million acres of Southwest Florida real estate, and saying, okay, I'll build this road, but this area, this is going to be called Collier County. Um, and, you know, the, the legislature jumped at it. So that's, that's how we got where we are. Uh, Lila, I'm going to bring you in now. So uh, it was Everglade, and then it was Everglades, and then it was Everglades City. 
But now it moved to Naples as the county seat in what year was that? 62. 62. 1962. Uh, from my reading, it looks like the city of Naples, or I guess it was the town of Naples originally, got it, off to kind of a pretty slow start. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, no. It was incorporated in 1923 when the county was incorporated. Well, it looked like it, it, it grew very slowly, I guess. Is it the, began in 1885. Okay. Well, tell Walt us a little bit about how Naples grew Naples up. Naples began in 1885 as a winter colony, a winter community for a handful of Kentuckians and Ohioans and, and the like. And uh, in 1885, Walter Haldeman came in and built a hotel and built a pier. He, was the head, he had major stock in what was called the Naples Company. And after he built the hotel and the pier, the population was about 25 people. It started growing as more, and then the, the town was, was uh, platted, lots were sold, to northerners, and the population began began growing after that. And the town, when Naples was incorporated in 1923, the population was just under 100 people. Wow. And it eventually grew to more as we became a city in, in 1949. Did I read somewhere that Naples' first mayor was only mayor for about 15 minutes? No, he was mayor for a year and a half. Oh. <laughs> the Collier Centennial website no, had, the first, bad, had bad the data first on it. The first uh, <laughs> meeting, for example, in Everglades, in Everglades uh, the Everglades was uh, incorporated in, on May 8th, but the uh, county commissioners didn't meet until July 7th at the Rod and Gun Club. In Naples, the town of Naples, the town council was incorporate town was incorporated in May in December 1923, and the town council had its first meeting in 1925 in April on April 13th. So he was mayor for that period. Naples didn't have its first meeting until a building was constructed for town hall. And that didn't happen until 1925. And Everglades, for example, they were in a hurry to get roads going. They didn't waste any time. They didn't have a town hall, so they just met at the Rod and Gun Club, if that answers your question. Yeah. So he was, the, this business about the first meet of being mayor 15 minutes came from, in order for a mayor to be elected, the first mayor has to resign. And that happened during the first 15 minutes of the first meeting on April 13, 1925. So 15 minutes after that meeting started, he resigned, and they had an election from among them. It wasn't a popular election, and Mayor Wilkinson was elected. Okay, so there so was he something. He was something mayor for, <laughs> since 1923, yes. Um, Franklin, I'm going to bring you in here, and we're kind of jumping around, but um, I spoke to you on our show about a year ago with Nick Penniman talking about the book you guys wrote about public lands in, in this area, and I was surprised, I think, to, to see that like more than 70% of Collier County is preserved as public land. Can you talk about some of the early successes in that story and and maybe things that you wish had been saved that you remember as a kid, you know, running through the, the fields in the swamps? There's a lot to that. Yeah, they we are fortunate that a high percentage of Collier County is in some kind of protected conservation status. But we have to be vigilant because we still have some very special areas that, that need to be protected and need to be acquired uh, uh, by Conservation Collier or, or the, the Wildlife Corridor that's supposedly been funded this year. Um, I get mad sometimes when I think about the very special places that were here in the county that few people brought the attention of their elected representatives and to other uh, entities. And uh, they weren't protected. They were lost. Ingram Billy's Indian Village, north of Turner River. Well, his village was right there at Turner River on the Tamiami Trail. But their corn dance village that they used during the green corn dance every year was north of there in an incredible hammock. And my brother, John, uh, was invited to the green corn dance three different times. And he calfed one at Ingram Billy's. He told me, there's, a, there's an island, there's a hammock in there, uh, and that's where the village is, and I was told that they hid out there during the Third Seminole War. And I said, oh, bull, I've been all over that area. There's no high ground in there. Well, we went through the fire flags up to waist deep, and all of a sudden there's a three-foot elevation, and it was an incredible uh, place. The old pole where they did their dances around and played stickball and everything, all the stuff from they had was left there in the village. Uh, you would have never known it was there. 
some of us were concerned about it because the National Park Service had been given the Big Cypress National Preserve. They had what I call Smokey the Bear Syndrome. They didn't believe in fire. And us locals kept telling them, and the old crackers, no, fire is almost as important as water. You need to burn these areas. Well, they didn't for many years. The fuel load got so high in Ingram Billy's village, surrounded by a pond apple swamp. It should never have been burnt, burned away. It's gone forever. There were many sites like that. The Osceola village, uh, north of the trail. There were historic sites. There, there were the old cow camps in Bear Island. If you ever read uh, Patrick Smith's book, A Land Remembered, you would, when you see those, saw those old camps, you thought, God, that, that's where that took place, you know? Well, the Park Service went in and deliberately burnt them down, you know? We finally get them to change direction, but uh, we lost so much that uh, there's an old cow camp I found a couple years ago north in what they call the additional lands, and somebody put on there said, please do not burn. And, uh, you know, people in their early efforts to protect these places sometimes were considered a little old ladies in tennis shoes and tree huggers and stuff. And, and so we did lose a lot over the years, but we have the big cypress, 700-something thousand acres. We have Everglades Park, over a million acres. You know, Collier's Seminole State Park, Conservation Collier's trying to buy, you know, land. Uh, like they just, county commissioners refused to buy the gopher tortoise land on Marco Island. So we need to be vigilant uh, if we want to protect these areas. Because the, the, the threat, just like as we were talking about earlier in Everglades City with Thomas, for overdevelopment and, and losing the character of that area, it exists. Um, you know, every coastal fishing village on the west coast of Florida has, you know, has talked about all these wealthy people coming down here and moving here. And well, they went in and the price got so high that the locals, some of them were the founding, you know, pioneer families, couldn't live there anymore. And where it was a quaint fishing village and the traps, you know, stinking on the shore, and they, uh, that's all gone. And so any place that's a little, we need to preserve whatever's left of old Florida. I'd like to uh, bring Laura and Lucas back in and talk some about Immokalee. And in my reading, I saw that the, uh, the Immokalee State Farmers Market was first uh, opened in 1951. And I know you guys aren't necessarily historians, so I don't want to put you on the spot. And if any of you guys, uh, you, Lily said you might be starting to work on yeah, a book. Um, OK, not yet. Um, uh, do you guys know much or anything about the history of that, or just Immokalee's backstory prior to when you arrived? And the the first market still exists and and, mm -hmm. and new market uh, road, but 30 years ago this uh, is more used for uh, pin hookers. It's a call. So people have their own trucks and came to the fields and pick the tomato like the orange tomatoes because 30 years ago the companies they don't like the color tomatoes. They they pick only the green tomatoes. Mm. So these uh, people are going to uh, buy these tomatoes, take to the fresh market, and some people from Tampa and other small sellers, they came to buy it, and 10 boxes, 50 boxes of tomatoes, and peppers, and uh, different squash. Because if you want, during the season, from November to May, fresh uh, vegetables, came to the uh, market in Immokalee. It's a local, and it's fresh. And it's still today, exists, but in a small scale, because right now, uh, the farmers, they pick the uh, color tomatoes, and they keep it and sell it. Yeah. You said you came here about 30, almost 31 years ago. Yes. You said you were 17 when you moved here? Yes. And the Coalition of Immokalee Workers was founded around that same time, right? Yes. So were you a 17-year-old founding the Coalition of Immokalee Workers? Yes, because <laughs> when, uh, you know what? Because when I came to the Immokalee, and I expect to work really hard, because when I was a kid, I worked in the fields, how my dad, my grandfather, uh, work in the fields in Mexico, produce corn and uh, squash for our consumption. And I know it's hard work, work in the fields, but we're very proud to do this job because produce food 
with my, our hands. So when we arrived, and when I arrived to Makali, and I started to work, but it's not respect in that time. By the crew leaders, they never refer like, uh, please doing this, or please doing, no, 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 hey, mother, what, blah, blah, doing this. So no respect. In the 90s, in Immokalee, almost the whole town is a 90% men's, 90%. 10% probably women's. So it's a really hard uh, environment for women in that time. So the people have the little bit power on the company, the crew leader, the supervisors, they, uh, uh, Sexually harassed. Sexually harassed the woman. And nobody said nothing. And I saw, but the, these guys touched the, my co-workers, woman, and I don't say nothing because if I try to do something, the next day I don't have a job. And she don't have a job, too. And the perpetrator is still working. So when I saw this happen in the fields, and I decided with other workers to do something, to change this imbalance of power. And that's why we, we started the, C, the CAW, to try to protect our basic human rights, the basic human rights. Because the coalition of immokalee workers, we're not a union. We are a human rights organization to protect the basic human rights for men and women working in the fields. How would you say, and Laura, you can chime in too, because you've been around for almost as long, um, how has Immokalee changed over the years because of the founding of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers? Yeah, well, um, when I first came to Immokalee, it was, as Lucas said, it was mostly men. It was a very hard place, like he said. And it was Mexicans, Haitians, Guatemalans, um, mostly a few white people. And uh, as a young attorney, we were mostly dealing with cases of wage theft, of sexual harassment, of abuse in the fields, things like that. Um, that was what we saw every single day. And with the founding of the coalition and the work that they've done to bring light to those abuses and, and to... It's a worker-driven organization, so the workers themselves are going out and, for example, they will see some sort of abuse in the fields. Um, somebody gets beat up in the fields with a, over a dispute, over wages or something. The coalition would go out in numbers, 5, 10, 15, as much as 100, and they would go to the crew leader's house or to the perpetrator's house into Manchester. And so... When that started happening, we saw changes because the the powers that be knew that if they were to do something against the workers, the workers would band together and demand their rights. Um, so that was the beginning, and, and, and we saw changes. The cases that were coming in were little by little less severe. Um, little by little, things were improving with constant pressure from the workers themselves. So in that way, it's changed. The composition of Immokalee has changed as well. At that time, the majority of workers in the field were undocumented workers. Um, today, you're seeing more um, workers that come on work visas, which is a different type of situation. And um, yeah, it's just basically, um, it's been a slow but gradual, steady improvement of the conditions. It's not perfect. Things There's still a lot to be done. We still do see a lot of um, abuses, maybe not so much in Immokalee, but in other places. So it's changing, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Reading up on it, it seems like because the work that you've done extends beyond the borders of Immokalee now. Um, does the name Immokalee mean something around the country and around the world? in a way that it, it wouldn't have 30 plus years ago? Oh yes, uh, because uh, you remember Harvest of Shame? Harvest of Shame is uh, happening in Makali, this documentary. So we came from Harvest of Shame to Harvest of Dignity right now. 
because harvest have changed since the past. Right now, and I mentioned when I started this, so we started this uh, fair food program to bring to the table the big buyers of the tomatoes, like Walmart, McDonald's, Burger King. So they signed an agreement with the CAW, and we created our own code of conduct to protect the basic human rights. So there's sexual harassment as zero tolerance under these uh, agreements. Uh, child labor, slavery. So in Collier County, this uh, in the past, is uh, five cases of slavery in Collier County. So not anymore in the tomato industry. So we eliminate these abuses. So in this fair food uh, program is working in the fields, implement in the fields. I'm one of the members of the group going to the fields to training workers, men and women, about these fair food agreements and what is your rights under fair food agreements. And you need right to report any abuse happening in the fields. And nobody fire if you report abuse. So we're working together to resolve this problem. The consumers, buyers, and uh, producers, and farm workers. So the, the model of the Fair Food uh, Campaign and the Fair Food Agreements, the model is extend and implement in other industries. The dairy industry in Vermont, the workers in Vermont, they implemented. Ben and Jerry's has participated in this uh, industry, in the dairy industry. And um, construction workers in Texas, the biggest company produce uh, tulips in Virginia. They implement this program in production tulips. Blumia uh, company. Uh, right now, we spend this program in Chile. We went to Chile last year. And this two months ago, we went to Africa to implement this program in Africa, in South Africa. And the model is implementing the garment industry in the Suto, South Africa too. So one of the, uh, apart from this uh, program, is implementing in the garment industry after the big uh, disaster happened in Bangladesh with a hundred people died. So the Bangladesh Accords, they implement one of the parts of these uh, fair food agreements, but there's a garment industry. And uh, last year, I went to the, uh, Geneva and the United Nations and the Human Rights and Business Conference. So more than uh, 5,000 people right there, uh, CEOs, uh, producers around the world, and I speak in, the, in, in front of everybody. So in this small town in Mokali created this vaccine to protect the other workers and other industries to protect only human rights, that's it. Yeah, yeah. We should we should be really really proud of our small town of Amalkali and and the workers in Amalkali who who have defended their own rights. As Lucas was saying, he uh, he went to the UN and um, I just have a quote here from the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Trafficking, who says that the Fair Food Program is an international benchmark in the fight against modern day slavery. There's another quote from the Harvard Business Review that says, it's one of the 15 most important social impact success stories of the past century. Um, the MacArthur Foundation says it's a vis visionary strategy with potential to transform workplace environments across the global supply chain. And um, the New York Times says um, it's 14 businesses that are part of the fair food program, maybe more should join. So it, it just goes to show that our little town of Immokalee has really been recognized around the world and I'm so proud of the workers there and I'm so proud of um, the coalition for defending their rights and, uh, and giving hope to workers around the world. So from our little place in Immokalee, we spread all around the world. Was the model for this? We're very. This is really something for our county to be proud of. It is. This hundred years. 
I, I would is. say it's one of the most important things that's happened. I agree, Seriously. and I, I'm, I'm glad you say that yes. because I, I think it should be recognized. And it hasn't been, not enough, locally. Um, Thomas, I think you mentioned Square Grouper earlier. I'm going to do a pivot here. I, I, think, <laughs> I think Franklin did, but I can certainly talk about it. Now. Well, I was going to bring up another reason <laughs> that uh, Collier County sort of became infamous, infamous at least for a stretch. Uh, Everglades City was, was uh, uh, known. Are you talking about the 80s? Yeah, yeah, yeah I was talking about the, <laughs> the, infamous 80s. the infamous 80s, and, uh, and a lot of marijuana came through Everglades City yeah. in the 80s, right? Um, the Operation Everglades uh, still rated as, as being the, the, uh, FBI? the, the, the largest seizure of, of contraband by, by the DEA. Uh, $250 million worth of, of contraband seized in a single raid. And, you know, when I started looking at it, I'm like, I'm like $250 million worth of marijuana in the 80s. I'm like, and, and I was talking to somebody who, who actually was there and knew some things. I said, that would mean that every single boathouse, every spare bedroom, every crawl space under every house, every attic space was completely packed with this stuff. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was a time, and it's it's interesting to 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 listen to people talk, and it's a it's a story that that, you know, I'm working with some people locally. We don't tell it in the museum because w at the time that the museum was founded in in um, 1998, there were still a lot of people that were serving prison time in that town. I had, there was a a moment when about 40 percent of the male population was doing time. Um, now, granted, you're talking about a town that has you know, has a year-round population of only about 400 people. So you're not talking a massive amount of people, but, you know, you had no crab fleet anymore. You know, there, you had a town full of what people say were prison widows. And, you know, there are lots of funny stories about it where the, the uh, um, you know, Everglades City is known for its, its tenacity, its pioneering spirit, and, you know, the guys who were in prison w would say that, you know, all the guys that were getting out would say, oh, I'm going to come, you know, go to, down to Everglades City where there's all those ladies that don't have men and, and meet people. And they say, yeah, you try that. Um, and, 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 um, you know, no, no worries there. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really colorful stories. And it really dates back for, you know, for a century. Um, Everglades City is really where the, you know the, the the plume hunting craze started when the, when you know uh, fancy ladies hats in New York and Paris uh, that whole fashion industry was taking off. Not to mention prohibition. Well, there were that and and that kind of goes along the, the the whole thing that that Everglades City has sort of this track record of illegal trades, and it sounds like a weird thing to say, but they come by it honestly. Um, <laughs> And so far away from civilization, people would get away well, with all that down there. The other thing about that being that, you know, you had a whole community of people who were subsistence livers. And, you know, living hand to mouth, you know, selling a bushel of potatoes at the, at, uh, to the, the trading post to get, you know, some sugar or some flour or things like that. And all of a sudden, some fancy people come by and say, you know, they're paying an ounce of gold for an ounce of those feathers over there. And suddenly these guys can, can, you know, go out, shoot a bird, and, you know, instead of cooking on a, a, a campfire, they can buy a cast iron stove through the Sears catalog. Um, no sooner do they have that opportunity to elevate themselves from subsistence living to a cash economy than the government comes by and says you can't do that anymore. Now, granted, the reason they did it was because the, 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 the waiting bird population was being destroyed. You know, not something that it was easily visible for people who were in a, the, a certain community. It just felt to them like every time they had an opportunity to make a little money, somebody came and made a law against it. Um, and after a while, I think that you you get numb to those uh, the, those sorts of laws. <laughs> um, but no, I mean it's it's a colorful place, and and you know a lot of people have, you know, somebody mentioned a land remembered. And in a land remembered, the cattle rustlers, the bad guys, you know, they all come from the 10,000 islands. You know, traditionally speaking, that's where the outlaws lived. And there are plenty of people in that community that, that, that you know, love to be identified in that way. They love to, to you know, to wear the, 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 uh, the outlaw uh, classification on their sleeve. 
Uh, Lila, from all of your uh, research about Naples, do you have any favorite stories or figures that you'd like to highlight for our people? Yes, there were many, 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 many. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is Michael Chance. He was editor and publisher of the Collier County News from 1950 until 1972. He started out in 1949 in Everglades City as a journalist, and then when the paper relocated to Creighton Cove in Naples by the Bay, he became editor and publisher. I like to say he didn't jump on the bandwagon of the 1950s. He built the bandwagon. And just like the Pied Piper, his pipe was his typewriter. He wrote his editorials. Anything he recommended the community do, they listened to him. He wrote it in the newspaper. They followed him. He conducted surveys. Uh, uh, he, he was a member of every organization locally, every organization. If something needed to be done, it would be drop it off at the, at the office of the Naples Daily News, and I'll see that city council gets it. Uh, it. It would be Michael Chance. He was just, as a reporter and a correspondent, he was just phenomenal, phenomenal. Did he leave a lot of uh, stuff for you to read? It was because of Michael Chance that our newspaper was digitized. Oh, wow. After Hurricane Donna deposited 36 inches of water in his office at Creighton Cove, he decided the newspaper is our history, and he took it upon himself to digitize the paper through 1969, and then the Naples Daily News took it over when it became Naples Daily News in, in, at that point. Yes, he, that's, he left us a lot of reading material. We didn't even and they're available at the, at the, at the, at the uh, Central Avenue branch of the library in, uh, on in, microfilm. In, 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 in Naples, microfilm? yeah, yeah. We didn't even mention Hurricane Donna. I mean, hurricanes have come through southwest Florida, and they've you know, helped shape who we are to this day. Um, Hurricane Diana, 1960, I was watching a documentary that WGCU made uh, back about 15 or 20 years ago, and somebody was talking about how Hurricane Diana, while it really did a lot of damage to Naples, it also was a sort of silver lining because they were able to, to rebuild at a time when it was a good time to rebuild. Well, Does that make sad. sense? It was sad because a lot of the mom and pop shops that had started back in the 40s, by then, decided to just pick up and leave. And, you know, they closed up shop. And developers came in and bought their, their, their businesses. So it was a clean slate for developers, yes. Um, Franklin, do you have any favorite stories of being a kid running through the swamps that you'd like to tell? Yeah, we did that too. Uh, that's how my brother paid his uh, guy that did his income tax every year was in frog legs that he got. <laughs> and uh, he's in arrears now, I heard. Um, no, you know, back then, 60... 70 years ago, we had such freedom to go wherever we wanted and pretty much do whatever we wanted. And once you've had that freedom, you miss it. And talking about Hurricane Donna and 60, at the corner of 10th Street and 5th Avenue South, where St. George and Dragon uh, was, the restaurant, that was Ed Frank's old garage, gas station there. And I was with the Hertz Corporation then, and that was my office, was in the old uh, Ed Frank, uh, what remained of the, the garage. And I did a talk a couple of years ago for the, uh, Mr. Eccles uh, in town, and he asked me to talk about hurricanes. And so I mentioned that in Hurricane Don in 1960, that the old paneling in my, in my uh, office, you could see the high water mark there. It was almost four foot of water right there. And, and I, one guy turned to the other and said, like, he's full of it, you know. Well, after Irma and, <laughs> and, and the latest one, I think people realize that Naples can get flooded, you know. And uh, when we were young, we, you could go down the beach, the bottom Fifth Avenue South, and build a campfire. You could sleep on the beach. You could fish on the beach. You could cook your fish. But then as Naples grew and progressed, those things were outlawed. You couldn't do them anymore. When our children were small, we used to go up to Wiggins Pass, the, the Del Nor Wiggins State Park now, and, and that was pretty wide open. And, but even the county then said, you can't have a fire on the beach anymore. Well, our, our whole neighborhood would go up there, and we would go down to Fakachi Bay before it was messed up and get a ton of oysters. And we'd have cookout oysters on the beach and fried fish and build a campfire and the kids would roast marshmallows, or s'mores, and, and that type that was great. So they outlawed us doing that. 
And so what I did one year is I took, I had an old steel wheelbarrow that was my dad's. I took it up there in the back of my pickup and took some wood with and built a fire in the wheelbarrow so the kids could do their spores and stuff. Well, sure enough, here came the sheriff department. He came up. It was a different world back then. And, uh, sir, you're, you're, I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to have a, a fire on the beach, you know. I said, well, officer, I said, it's not on the beach. It's in the he, <laughs> he just looked at me and kind of grinned. And he said, well, when you leave, take it with you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but back then, you knew everybody on the highway patrol, the sheriff's department. And the, I'll tell you about one thing. The cultural event of Naples in the 50s, was the swamp buggy days, and I was a racer, and we uh, we had a great time. There was no Ritz Carlton then or any of that, you know. And uh, we would have the swamp buggy ball. We would have the parade where people put together floats. One year, the the people from Immokalee won with their float. It was incredible, you know. It had a campfire on it, you know, and. October until the end of November, until the race. Yeah, and, and, and the pioneer dress and the pioneer clothes the women used to wear, everyone. In I, I bank employees, city hall employees, everyone was dressed during Swamp Buggy Days in pioneer clothes. And you better you yes. better grow a beard. Yes. I, I, I meant it was to a bring I meant to bring my uh, thing. Yeah, I was part of the beard patrol. If you were on the streets and you didn't have a beard, we were going to arrest you and put you in that portable jail. Yes. And you had to pay to get out. Yeah. Of course, the money went to a good cause, right. just like the Swamp Buggy Queen right. thing do you, did. And and do you remember the Kiwanis when they had their auctions at Cambier Park? Yes. They had crazy auctions. They even they auctioned farm animals. The city had to pass an ordinance limiting what you could auction. <laughs> they went around door to door, just as for fundraising, knocking on doors, collecting jewelry, farm animals, a seawall. Um, and then they had short pants day. Remember when the short pants patrol Real went men around don't in a wear truck? Short pants. The short pants patrol, the Kiwanis <laughs> short pants patrol, went around in a pickup truck and a jail, a makeshift jail. And if you weren't wearing short pants, they'd put you in the jail and fine you and fine you. And that was the fundraising, the fine part. And one guy said he cut off only one leg of his pants. He said, I'm only paying half the fine. I mean, they did funny things. And they set up a court and he said, I'll, I'll see the judge. And they said, okay, we'll put you in front of a judge. And they set up a mock trial. And of course, he won. He only had to pay half the fine. But it was fun. It was oh, fun. It was. It was a great event. Lasted a long time. And this was uh, before integration. And I remember the Dunbar High School would come down from Fort Myers every year in the parade. And that guy that was the band uh, drum major, I don't know how tall he was, but he could kick six feet in the air. He was just, it was incredible just to watch him. And, uh, the, do you um, remember creeping eruptions? Yes. You do? <laughs> yeah. That was Naples Beach. City Council eventually in the mid-60s had to pass an ordinance banning dogs from the beach. Yeah. Because children, mothers were going crazy. Children were developing creeping eruptions. You can tell them about that. Well, the, uh, uh, back then there weren't all these people coming from, from Dade and, and Broward County over here. It was pretty quiet on the beach. And my wife told me, be careful what you say. But... Our son was about this tall, and we were at the beach down around 17th Avenue South one day, and he came over, and he was holding himself. I said, I knew what that meant. He said, Daddy, I got to pee. I said, well, go over there behind those sea oats. Now, there's some people over there. I said, well, go in the water and pee on the fish. He was in the water. I wasn't supposed to tell him. But anyway, it was great fun, and there were, back then, you were in a hurry. You needed to part. You went to Sunshine Hardware, you're lucky if you got out of there in an hour because you knew everybody and you get in these conversations. Hey, did you hear about Isabel? Is that true? You know, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, you know everybody in town, their business, they're all Booker. I have to mention all. Uh, I tried to, yeah, tried to get somebody to do an oral history on him. He, he passed away in 2011, but he owned the Standards Station. And uh, I remember in the, in the garage, he had, had a sign on the back of the garage wall that said, labor, $30 an hour, but if I have to listen to how everything is bigger and better up north, it's $45 an hour. He <laughs> yeah. yeah. was, was a good man, but uh, they were great times. His wife was the first telephone operator. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. The, yeah. they, they were the first telephone yeah. people. He laid the line. Yeah. She R held it for him. Yeah, R yeah. Earl, Earl and Ruth. 
and, and he would go out if there was a complaint at night, out the trail on the line, and, and Ruth would shine the spotlight, and Earl would climb the pole. And uh, when those rotary plastic dial phones came out, he had to go out and take out all those old wooden crank ones. Well, he brought them back to where they worked there, the warehouse, and he didn't know what to do with them. So he said, I piled up all those old wood crank phones and burnt every one of them. He said, if I'd have kept them, I could retire. <laughs> you two should start a podcast. <laughs> oh, it's state attorney, I'm sorry. And it, you, bought, you, bought, you bought a ticket to dunk one of those into the dunk tank at Cambia Park. I mean, they just did... Yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Um, we got to start wrapping this up, but I wanted to just ask uh, uh, Lucas. You've you've lived in Immokalee all these years, right? Yes. Do you figure you're going to keep living there for, for from now on? I mean, is that your home for sure? Absolutely. Uh, I'm born in Mexico. But I think I died in Immokalee. <laughs> yeah, because I I'm very proud of my I call my hometown Immokalee. Because my two kids born uh, in Immokalee, they going to school in Immokalee. So, and I'm very proud of Immokalee. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that, you know, in 10 or 20 or, you know, we can't imagine 100 years, I don't think, into the future, but do you think it will ever become more developed? You know, land is, there's only so much land. I mean, can you imagine a future where Immokalee becomes something fundamentally different than it's always been? I think it's a... Immokalee has changed, right? Because right now, uh, Ave Maria is only five miles from Immokalee. And more and more uh, private uh, houses and big developments right now. Gargiulio is one of the main producers of tomatoes. Uh, they closed the farm number three in this season. So, but they moved the uh, farm number three from Collier to Henry County. Our weather during the winter the Florida weather is perfect for agricultural industry. So more developments is coming, but the agriculture, I think, is survivor in the next 100 years hmm. because people need food. We need food. So, and we need somebody to produce food, and we do it in the So only the difference, probably, in, in 100 years is uh, completely... If you, right now, it's a big change happening in the agricultural industry. Probably in 100 years, it's a completely different industry. Because when I arrived in Immokalee, the farm workers, we under table. Right now, thanks to the Fair Food Agreements, men and women work in the fields, we have a seat on the table. And we speak directly with the farmers, with our crew leaders, with our, the management of the company, and we have a voice in these companies. Laura, uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? We're, we're going to wrap up and then take some questions from the audience. I'd give you one last chance if you'd like. Yeah, well, I've, I've lived in Collier County for a number of years now, and it, it's, uh, I wouldn't change it. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Um, even Immokalee has its beautiful parts. I, I encourage anybody listening who is interested to come out to Immokalee and you know, there's some fun things to do. We have Lake Trafford, and we have come out and get your vegetables at the market. And uh, so, yeah, Collier County is my home, and uh, I plan to stay as well. Thomas? Um, I'll add to that by saying we, we have a Collier County Museum in Immokalee, the Immokalee Pioneer Museum at Roberts Ranch. And um, they just got a grant where they're... Uh, replanting uh, the you know historic orchard and telling more of the agricultural story. The Roberts family were great uh, cattle ranchers, and there's a lot of that history. And the, the neat thing about Collier County, we have five free museums all operated by county government. Um, I've, like I said, I've been a museum professional almost 20 years. I haven't lived anywhere where there's more than one free museum. We've got a lot here. Um, and it's it's pretty incredible. And and the, the the thing about these museums is they tell the different stories of the different communities. You know, Collier County is the second largest county geographically in the state of Florida. And they're all these very, very, you know, some isolated, but all very unique communities with their own heritage, with their own cultures, with their own stories. And for me, it's exciting to be to be part of that. 
I just closed on a house on the 5th, and I just turned 59 yesterday, so you guys are stuck with me continuing to tell this story. So, Lila? Oh, okay. uh, as a writer, I'd like to say, the road through Collier County's history is paved with words. Get comfortable with a good book, history book, open it to the first page, and enjoy the journey. And Franklin, you get the last word. Let's Real see. men don't wear short shorts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, no, listening to, to, to Lucas talk and, and, and uh, Lori, they, uh, we need to think about what we can do to help agriculture and the commercial fishermen. Don't buy stuff from Indonesia. Their shrimp don't taste as good as a Gulf pink, you know? <laughs> But all this competition and competition for the agricultural people, for agricultural products, try whenever possible to buy local produce and support them. And we need to talk to those few ranches that remain and uh, because there's some of the best habitat left in Florida. And I'm thinking of a 10,000-acre ranch all over there off State Road 29 we would hope they'd put a conservation easement on it and not develop it because, as Lucas mentioned, there's all that development out to the east and the impact of it. But uh, enjoy the history. You know, some of us probably live more in the past than we do in the present. We neglect the present, but it's so much more interesting back then. Thank you. That was Franklin Adams, longtime Collier County resident and environmental leader, Thomas Lockyer, manager of the Museum of the Everglades, Lila Zook, a local author and historian, Lucas Benitez, co-founder of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, and Laura Vasquez, longtime Collier County resident and director of complaint resolution with the Fair Food Standards Council, which is part of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. You can hear the full version of our conversation, which contains some more fun bits of history on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl. Our show today was produced by Tara Calligan, Pam James, Ann Stavely, and myself. Our director was Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. <laughs>